0: So I'm going to hand over to uh, to Donna, who's, um, for want of other longer title, is a volunteer (laughs) coordinator. It's good to have you with us, Donna. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. It's so lovely to be here. That was a delicious lunch. It's not very often I'm able to come out and have lunch with with people, so that's great. Thank you very much. Um, I just wanted a couple of minutes with you, really. Um, Now, the gentleman who was just speaking, I don't know his name, but he was just saying that some of you might have had some experience of, of working or being part of Dorothy House or you may have had relatives or friends that you know of who've been in our care. So really just to bring you up to date really with where we are at the moment and, and what we're doing. So I just wanted to do that if that's okay. So um, we're specialist, specialist palliative care experts um, we provide specialist palliative care and palliative is about people towards the end of their life. So it could be someone who needs care um, usually at home these days. We usually, at home, we usually go in, we have nurses who go in and, and see people in their homes. Um, and that can be anything up to about three years that people could be with us. We've got some patients who have actually been with us longer but it could be up to about three years. That's normally an average, or we could have someone who needs to come into our care for a matter of weeks before they die, and that's fine as well. So um, our staff include doctors, nurses, therapists, carers and counsellors, and we see patients in their home, and we also have a hospice at Winsley, I don't know if any of you have been up there to Well Winsley Hospice. Yes, some people are saying yes, that's great. Um, But we do tend to care for more and more people in their own homes because that's where they want to be. Um, So they work closely with GPs, um, with community nursing teams, hospital staff and other healthcare professionals to ensure a high standard of care and support And we are regularly inspected by the Care Quality Commission, which we have five stars for at the moment, which is great. So what does our community landscape look like? Well, we look after people from Malmesbury, right up in the north end of our patch, all the way down to Shepton Mallet in the south. And our local teams are working in your community So we cover approximately 700 square miles. And recently we've taken on a new area, which is around the Chew Magna area. So we've got another few, it's probably about a 20 miles um, square area that we're looking after. We're just starting to look after patients there as well. Um, We have 10 community palliative care teams. So they work out in the community and they're mostly made up of our nurses. And um, they are on the ground helping to ensure that everyone who needs us has access to outstanding palliative and end-of-life care. So we we think that every life is precious and we're here to make sure that anyone in our community who is facing a life-limiting illness can live well and die well. We do this by understanding who our patients are and what is most important to them. And together, we create individual care journeys, which start from diagnosis and continue all the way through and also include bereavement support for family members, for carers and also for children. So this can include a range of services from our specialist medical support to our complementary therapists to helping patients live their final days at home and arranging experiences that create precious memories for families and friends. So we just, we recently had a family whose who the mother was dying of cancer and she wanted to take the family to the seaside and she wanted to have a week where she could spend with them and we helped to organise that and the family were able to go down to the sea and she was able to be in the sea with her children and swim. And um, she, towards the end of that week, became quite weak herself. And was. Um, we had someone come from the hospice to come and pick her and her family up. She came back to the hospice and she died on that seventh day. So she actually had that, had, had that time with her family, which was very precious to her, and it's what her wishes were. So we wanted to be able to help with that. So we do do that when it's asked for. So our services require a referral that can be made by any health and social care professional, by a person with a life-limiting illness themselves, so it can be a self-referral, or by a friend or family member or a person with a life-limiting illness. So we provide community groups as well, which are open in our community for anyone who may be affected by a life-limiting illness or bereavement. So for example, we have um, bereavement help points which are open in our community. I think the nearest one to here is actually Shepton Mallet, so it's a little bit of a trek, but there's one in Keynesham now, and there's one in Bath, and we're looking to open more of them as well. So within the areas that really need them, And we have a couple of different kinds of um, voluntary groups out in the community. One of them is a community companion. And the reason why I'm here today is because I know Karen and Karen is one of our community companions. So these are people who are volunteers who spend some time with patients in their home, usually two to three hours a week. They are there to provide companionship and emotional support which may also, and that also helps to allow their carers to have some time for themselves. So I know that Karen looks after a lady at the moment whose husband, it gives him some time then to be able to go out and do things that he wants to. Companions take their lead from the patients and they spend their time together. It could be chatting, it could be sharing music, playing board games, or maybe visiting the shops or going for a coffee depending on what the patient wishes and some of our companions also help patients document their life stories with photographs, voice recordings, letter writing and scrapbooking and creating something valuable to pass on to loved ones. I know that Karen's doing something quite similar at the moment with the lady that she sees. So for many people they struggle with the idea of a hospice They think it's a sad place where people go to die. And at times it can be sad, of course. But there is also, it's a place for life and laughter. And there's an awful lot of it that happens at Dorothy House. And we do thank everybody for their time and their commitment. Anybody who can help us as a volunteer. If anyone would like to, I'm, I'm here today, happy to chat. But yes, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Yes, of course. How are we financed? Um, we have about 20 per, 20% of our finances come from the government via the NHS. The rest of it is, is completely funded by the public, so we very much look for fundraising, so we do lots of fundraising in the community. So yes, I mean, obviously, and, and the, the, the amount of funding that we get from the NHS reduces every year it goes down. So we need to top that up with more money. So we do lots of different events in the areas that we, that we cover to try and see if we can get as much money as possible. That's great. Has anybody else got any other questions? Our hospice, Dorothy House, covers an area. So we're made up of a family of various hospices throughout the country that will cover areas. So St Margaret's will cover um, Midsummer Norton and Down. And then we have um, St. Peter's who cover Bristol. So we're very, but but we do work quite closely together, even though we're all very different, we're different charities. But because of the way the National Health Service is starting to run, we're doing more and more work and partnering together so we can help to help each other, but also create a bigger way in which we can help our communities. Yeah, thank you. Anything else that anyone wants to ask? No, thank you very much for allowing me to come. Cheers.
0: Thank you, Donna. We agree with you that uh, every life is precious, isn't it? The Bible says we're sacred as human beings because we're made in the image of God. Every individual is uh, special to God. So thank you for the work you do. And uh, if you haven't found a way yet to support dorothy house have a chat with don there's plenty of ways you can do that have you have you been in the new furniture store in midsummer norton high street There's good stuff in there yeah so go in there and bereavement wise you may or may not know that we are currently coming to the end of our bereavement journey course that we're running we hope to run another one in the spring that's right so we're trying to bring some uh, bereavement uh, journey grief dealing with your grief in this area the best that we can. So if you're interested in that, have a chat with Karen too, because there'll be a new course hopefully in the spring. So thank you again, Donna, for coming and for sharing with us. Okay, I'm gonna hand over to to, uh, Nigel now, but a little bit of background. Nigel was born and brought up in the Lebanon, I believe. Uh, And then uh, he's uh, Peter and Margaret's son-in-law, for those that want the family connection. Uh, But also um, he's, I think, You're the nephew of Arthur White, that's right. Some of you might remember Arthur White from Norton Hill and elsewhere, so uh, Nigel is the uh, nephew of Arthur White too. So it's good to have you with us, uh, Nigel. And... and, uh, Having come back, you then returned to the Le- Lebanon, I think, and stayed there for about 17 years, is that right? And, and worked over there. And uh, you know the Lebanon has always been a bit of a flashpoint in the Middle East for lots of reasons, and currently is too. So I'm sure that Nigel's heart is very much praying towards peace in the Lebanon and in the Middle East. And um, he returned with his wife. Uh, you're still working, I believe. Yeah. Is it in real estate of some kind? There you go. Yerka and Margaret, you passed with flying colors in real estate. It's good to have him with us. I'm going to hand over to him. But let me, before we do, I'm just going to pray for the work of Dorothy House, okay? Father God, we do thank you for the work of Dorothy House in all its different areas and different ways. We pray that they would know that as well as supporting them financially or volunteering, we will pray for that organization that they're able to continue to give that palliative care to those that need it so much and those that care for them. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Nigel.
2: Well, thank you very much, and it's nice to be with you. Uh, I was uh, preaching at a small church in uh, Claverton Down. No, Claverton, I think it was. Or was it Claverton Down? Claverton. And uh, an elderly lady came up to me afterwards and said, Nigel, that was wonderful. You were short and loud. (laughs) And I said, thank you very much. We aim to please. So hopefully... I'll be short and loud, but there we are. So I've really been asked to talk about my journey, and it is quite a weird one. You've heard some of the sort of highlights, but I'm going to go through it in a bit more detail, and uh, it is a strange one. Um, If you have any questions afterwards, I'd be very happy to answer them. I was toying with the idea of speaking on the conflict in the Middle East, but I thought that you've probably had enough of that in at least the short term, which is very, very sad. And as Mike was saying, my heart is tremendously saddened by what's going on. I have many, many friends still in Lebanon, and I do, but we'll come to that in a minute. So I thought what I'd do is I'll tell you where I am now. Well, you can tell where I am now, but I'll, I'll put a bit more meat on the bone. And then I'll tell you how I got here. And during that time, I'll tell you some of the sort of highlights in my life and so on that may twig some memories or may make you think. So, at the moment, I'm 54, soon to be 55. My wife looked at me the other day and said, are you going to be 55 in January? And I said, yes. I thought that was very rude, but there we are. She can't help being Margaret. No, I'm joking. I'm joking, Mum. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I I promised I would not be rude about my in-laws, but it's it's very difficult. So, (laughs) I'm I'm 54, and I work as a... Now, wait for it. This will put you to sleep. I'm a business development director and ops manager. How boring is that? Yeah, don't go woo. It's very boring. So basically, I try and sell people stuff. And when I've sold people stuff, I try and make sure we do it for them. That's the ops part, the operations manager part. I work for a company based in Leicester, even though my main work is around Bristol or London. But I'm sometimes up in Leicester. And I do quite a bit of traveling around the country. Very rarely. Never go abroad, really, for work. So it's just... Round the country. We live in Shepton Mallet, or as we like to call it now, Shepton Mallet, because since moving there we've obviously you know, made it a little bit more fashionable. It's a bit like living in Yate as opposed to Yate. Someone told me that once, but there we are. So we've, we've, we, we've lived in Shepton Mallet for the last year approximately, and before that we were 10 years in Bath, but I'll come to that as well. Uh, I am married, as Mike was saying, to Peter and Margaret's oldest daughter, Annette, and we've been married 31 years. In October, we celebrated our 31st anniversary, and we have three children, all grown up, all away, so we are empty nesting, which is terrible, of course. I was about to say wonderful, but I shouldn't have said that, because it'll get back to them. So, uh, Nadine is our oldest. She lives in London with her husband, she's a teacher. She's head of science at a school in Paddington. And our middle one, Maria, is studying to be a doctor, studying medicine at Southampton University. And Sam, our youngest our baby boy, is massive now and is studying mechanical engineering at Southampton University as well. So, but he's on a year's placement. So that's where we are now. So I was born in 1969, end of the 60s. And I was born in Beirut in Lebanon. And the reason I was born in Beirut in Lebanon is because my parents were missionaries out there. So my mum and dad met in North London. They got married in 1960. And then they went out to Lebanon for two years. And they came back in the year 2000. So they got it a bit wrong. They couldn't really count very well. So my brothers, my two older brothers and myself were born out there. And as you know, 1969 was very close to the start of the Civil War and so on. And in fact, we didn't used to come back to England that often. So my first time back in England was when I was five years old in 1974. I don't know if you know those days when missionaries only came back every five years or so. When we were out there, we were back almost every summer. But those days were different. They used to come back by boat. So it took a bit longer. So my first time back in the UK was in 74, and then we went back out, and in 75, the Civil War started. So I remember when we went to live in Bath, we lived on a particular road, I won't tell you which one, and when I told someone that's where we live, he said, oh, Beirut. And it was a very weird thing, because that road had a bit of a A a reputation as being a bit of a troubled road and what do we think whenever we think of something troubled we say Oh, that's like Beirut now, maybe that's changed slightly and there are other places. We'll call We'll call different things, but it was strange to be in Bath and then still be back in Beirut, but there we are Um, As I say 75 this the war started and so my mum and dad decided that we needed to leave So we left for i was actually out of the country for two years dad went back because he was the headmaster of a school and he carried on teaching at the school the school had to move because obviously different lines were drawn up but before we left one of my my first memories actually it's quite weird i don't have many memories of when i was a young kid and i'm not sure if it was because of the war but it's strange i can't remember any memories like i say when i came back to england in 74 I don't remember anything about that, nothing. And I was five, so it's strange. Maybe you've got memories that you can remember when you were younger. Anyway, in 75, this is one of my first memories, when I was six years old, our house was on the front line in Beirut. And there had been some sniping. So I don't know whether you know a lot about the Lebanese Civil War. It was largely, it was a very, very complicated war, but it was largely between the nominally Christian phalangist militias and against if you like the palestinian militias but also the largely nominally muslim militias in that country our house was on the christian side but only just and i remember there was a knock on the door we were on the third floor of this building and we opened the door and there were two phalangist fighters there christian militia fighters and they looked really dodgy, as I suppose you would see anyone with a gun when you're six. And they pulled us out and said, "Stay outside." They were very good to us, to be fair. They didn't mistreat us, and they went in and searched the house because they thought that someone was sniping from our house into their areas. And so that was strange, because that stuck with me. I don't, like I say, I don't even remember getting on the plane to come back in '75. It's weird. And yet that has always stayed with me maybe because it was a little bit traumatic but i i I can blame a lot of things on that but it's probably unfair so we came back in 75 mum and dad and me and john and steve we stayed here to uh, mum stayed with us for two years dad went back and then in 77 we all went back again so we moved house up into the mountains lovely village in the mountains of lebanon i don't know how much you know about lebanon absolutely beautiful country. Everyone thinks it's deserts and people with tea cozies on their head or tea towels riding camels. You you can't see any camels unless you go to one of the touristy places. There's no desert there. It has the same annual rainfall as England, Lebanon does. There is skiing, alpine skiing. And when we went back this Easter, we nearly were able to do that. We went and played in the snow in the morning and we drove down to the coast and we jumped in the sea in the afternoon. It's like that, the Mediterranean Sea. It's, it's a very, very beautiful country to live in. So in 77, we went back, and for six years, I studied there. So I did my, up to the year before O-level. That's how old I am. Yes, I remember O-levels. And we went to this international school, and that international school in 83 had to close its foreign system because the war got so bad. But it was, a, it was strange living It was strange being a kid in war. I don't know whether it's unfair of me to say, but it was very exciting. So some days the school would be closed because the library had been hit. And we were really happy. It's a terrible thing to think. We didn't think, but wait, we could have been there. It was just great, no school. Let's go, let's go and play cards or do something else. And then there were other times when we had to huddle in the corridor because that was the safest place because there was shelling, but you never felt that it was going to affect you necessarily. It was a very strange existence. So like I say, in 83, that school said, we can't operate anymore. There aren't enough foreigners in the, in the country. In one sense, there not being many foreigners in the country actually helped me quite a lot. Because if you imagine, when I was five or six, when the war started, a lot of the foreigners left Lebanon. So actually, all my friends were Lebanese. And that's why I can speak Arabic fluently, and that has helped me tremendously. I feel very bad, but very sad, really, being here now that I can't practice my Arabic. So every now and again, my kids say, come on, Dad, let's speak Arabic. So we speak Arabic for a whole day, which is very weird when people look, you, look at you very strangely on the high street. But there we are. So I then came back in 83, and I did my O-level year in North London, At a comprehensive school in North London. But before I came back, in that Easter of 83, that's when I became a Christian. So I wanted to tell you a little bit about my conversion story. It won't take very long. So as you know, as you've heard, I was the son of missionaries. And I mean, for goodness sake, isn't God going to let me into heaven? I mean, honestly, I was going to go to heaven the pearly gates would fling open and say, Son of Colin and Joan White, welcome. And I had been to church since I I couldn't remember how long I'd been to church. Two or three times every Sunday I'd been to church. And in 83, I was 14 years old. And we used to have, have you heard of the organization Youth for Christ? YFC, right. We used to have, the YFC youth meetings at our house in the mountains in Lebanon. And when I was there, they were really badly attended. I don't know whether that's a reflection on me and my friendships, but there was one night when there were only three of us, and two of us were missionary kids, so we weren't doing very well, but there we are. There were only three of us in the room. Mark Holmes, I remember their names, Andrew Yegnazar, and me. And... The guy who ran it, John Sagarian, who I'm still in contact with today, I still get WhatsApp messages from this man. He used to run Lebanon Youth for Christ. He was an Armenian Christian. And he thought, there's only three of you, right? I'm not going to do what I was going to do. And he just sat down and he said, I'm going to ask you a question. I said, okay, right, John, ask us a question. And he said, Are you a Christian? Now, I was 14. I'd been to church three times every Sunday since I was zero. Doesn't that make me a Christian? And it was really weird. I must have been asked that question before. But you know what? I'd never answered it. But he said, I want you to think about that. I've asked you a question. Think about it, please. So I went, "Mm." And I actually had to say, I'm not. I wasn't. I had never come to that stage of thinking, I need Jesus. I need saving. Because I always thought, it's mum and dad, it's Steve, it's John, it's everyone else's problem, it's not mine. And John Segarian put me on the spot. And the wonderful thing is that night I gave my life to Christ. And I was only 14, but if I want to, please, can I give some advice? If you... If you want to move on in your faith, if you do become a Christian and you want to move on, get involved in something evangelistic. So imagine, I was only 14, and that summer, Lebanon, the Lebanese Bible Society, was doing a mission to the south of Lebanon. So this little 14-year-old said, can I go? And I went. And because my Arabic was so good, I was used as a translator, So I'd be walking around with these Americans and British and other people, and we'd be knocking on doors, and I'd say, what do you want to say? Hello. Marhaba. How are you? Keefa kenta? Meshul hal? And I would just be translating for these people. And that helped me be able to share my faith. Because as they shared their faith, I was translating it into Arabic. And it's amazing how that helped me grow. So that was Easter and summer of 83. And then we came back to England. And I was thrust into a comprehensive school in North London, having never really lived in this country. Oh, my word, I struggled. It was so tough. I had the wrong haircut. I had the wrong clothes. I had the wrong accent. And that's something. If you ever know people who are third culture kids, that's what they call us now. We're not missionary kids anymore. We're called third culture kids, TCKs. That's one of the most difficult things about being a TCK. When I was in Lebanon, I was an English person. When I was in England, I was an Arab. And sometimes I was called even worse things than that, you can imagine. And that's one of the difficult things. You you struggle to fit in wherever you are. Anyway, so I did my O-level year. And then my A-level year, mum had to go back to Lebanon to help dad run the school. Because at the time, they were running two schools. Dad ran the boys' school and mum ran the girls' school. So what are they going to do? They had to put me into a boarding school. So you'll all have heard of the school. I went to Moncton for two years, for my A-level years. And then after my A-level years, I went back out to Lebanon to help dad with the school as a year off. And then I went to Bristol for three years. Did mechanical engineering, just like Sam is doing now, my son. And then I took another year off because I just loved years off. It was just brilliant. It was the best thing to do. And I went around southern Africa with some friends and had a wonderful year then. And then I came back and I taught in... Sa- no, and then I did a PGCE. It's crazy. I did a postgraduate stif- certificate of education. So I became a maths teacher. And I taught in South London. And this is a strange story. I saw an advert in a paper, and it was Croydon High School, GPDST. I didn't know what GPDST stood for. Some of you do probably know. Okay, wait for it. So I went for the interview. And as I was walking around the school, I said to the headmistress, there are a lot of girls here. And she started laughing thinking I was joking. Now, GPDST stands for Girls' Public Day School Trust. I didn't know that I'd applied to an all-girls school. But there we are. Anyway, so I got the job, Strange enough. I don't know how I got the job. And I was there for three years. And that's when Annette and I, Peter and Margaret's daughter, we got married in 1992. So in October 1992, we got married in South London. And we spent three years there, In Selzden, Sanderstead, maybe Croydon. You've probably heard of Croydon. That's where we were for three years. And then during that third year, we felt called to go out to Lebanon. And I think this is amazing about Annette. She's an amazing woman anyway, and I'll get emotional, but this is why she's most amazing. We had thought, no, no, we'll go abroad, but we'll go somewhere where neither of us know And then suddenly in that third year, she said, what are we doing, Nigel? You know Arabic. You're fluent at Arabic. You already have friends there in Lebanon. Let's go to Lebanon. And so that's what we did. We went out. We were met by someone. There's a big story around that, and I'm not going to go into it. But we met someone out there who was the headmistress of a school in Beirut, and she offered us a job. Now, when you offer someone a job, you normally pay them, don't you? Well, well, she couldn't pay us. Because if she paid us, we would have to get a work permit. And we probably wouldn't be able to get a work permit. So we talked to, do you know Echoes of Service? So Echoes of Service, they helped us to go out there. And basically, for 16 and a half years, we relied on people giving us money from this country. And it teaches you a lesson that it really does when you do not know how much money is coming into your bank at the end of every month. Nowadays, my wife works for the NHS. I work for Bellrock. Every single month we know exactly how much money we're going to get. But when we were in Lebanon, from month to month, you got a statement on the fifth of the month for the previous month. And that's when you found out how much money was in your account. And for 16 and a half years, we never needed for anything. It is an amazing thing. I know it is used sometimes as a cliche. I know it's used as a cliche that God provides but I know a lot of people here would probably agree that God does provide. And we can give concrete testimony to the fact that God is a God who provides. If he calls you, he will equip you. Anyway. So, where I wanted to tell you a little story, one more story. Yeah, I haven't done too long, have I? That's not too bad. One more story. I think some of you have probably heard of Rob Scott Cook. So when I was in Bristol, I used to go to Rob Scott Cook's church. If you don't know Rob Scott Cook, him and Pam used to. I don't know whether they still run a church. I'm not sure in Bristol. But when I was there many, many years ago, because you can tell I'm very old, he was running a church there. And I used to go there every Sunday. And ever since, we've really kept in contact with Rob because he was such a wonderful pastor and he almost has still remained a pastor to us. And you know people say, God spoke to me. You know that? And God does speak to us, doesn't he? He does speak to us through his word. I get that. But there are very few times in my life when I can say he spoke to me specifically But I'm going to tell you about one of them. When you come back from where you're serving as a missionary, and you come back to this country, what you tend to do is go on something called deputation, which means you go around speaking to hundreds and thousands of people and you get completely knackered. Because the idea is that people in Lebanon thought we were here having a holiday and you end up at one... I remember one summer... I spoke 43 times in 22 days. So I was doing about two a day, and sometimes three or four on a Sunday. And you just get very, very low. And things were a bit of a struggle in Lebanon anyway. And I think this was about 2002. I had to speak at two places in one day, one of them in Bristol and one of them in Swindon. So I spoke at the one in Bristol, and then I organized to see Rob Scott Cook. And if you know Rob, you know what he's like. He has an open telephone line to God, it seems. It's very annoying, but there we are. It's very nice as well. And he said, Nigel, I have a verse for you. Now, I'm sure you've been given verses before, haven't you? And, and some, of them are, some of them are good. Let me read to you the verse he gave me. He said, it's Haggai. It's a really weird name. Haggai 2, verse 9, 19. And this described me to a T. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. Now, we live with Tesco's or Morrisons or whatever just down the road, don't we? In these days that this was being written to, people had their orchards, they had their olive trees. And if those things didn't bear fruit, guess what? Your kids died. And I felt like this. I felt, is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. And then, the, and then the prophet says, from this day on, I will bless you. He's quoting from God. From this day on, I will bless you. Now, that's all Rob Scott Cook told me. So I then drove from Bristol to Florence Street Gospel Hall in Swindon. And you can see I'm quite an emotional character, can't you? I mean, I I can't hide it very well. And I was crying all the way. And I got there early, about half an hour early. And I was in floods of tears. And I decided to look at Haggai 2. And I looked at verse 18. And it says this. From this day on. from this 24th day of the ninth month. Now, I know that the Jewish calendar is different from the English calendar. I know that. But guess when our flight was back to Lebanon? The 24th of September. And I, I, I can't describe the feeling I had when I read that, that God cared enough to give Rob Scott Cook a message that was so specific to me. And this is something that's very powerful for me. Because I knew I was not worthy. And I knew I was not lovable. Now, you may look at me and think I am, but I know I'm not. But the great thing is about when you follow God, it is not about you being lovable and it's not about you being worthy, it's about His character. It's not about your character. And that is very powerful. It is to do with him being loving rather than us being lovable. And so we went back to Lebanon, and it was, a, it was a good end to our time there. It was a very tough end to our time there, but it was a very good end to our time there. And so we come to now. My brother is still out there. He runs a school out there, so when we got out there... In 1995, for 10 years, I was basically deputy head of a school in Beirut, the capital. And then in that 10th year, God called us to head up a school in Tyre, in the south of the country. So the famous biblical Tyre, which is only 12 miles from the Israeli border. And the school was 95% Shiite Muslim. Now, I don't know whether you know the difference between the Shiites and the Sunni Muslims and so on, and I don't want to go into that because then your tea will burn, let alone your lunch. So I'm not going to go into that, but one day maybe we'll have that discussion because I think it's very, very important to not be ignorant. Or let me ask you, (coughs) plead with you, if you are I don't mean to say ignorant and rudely, but if you're not sure of something, try and learn about it rather than pass comment on it. And you know where I'm going with this. In the last few weeks, there's been a lot of talk. And it's very, very sad. The whole situation is sad. And I'm not going to go into it because it it would be difficult. But when we were in Tyre... 95% 95% Shiite Muslims, I used to have tea every two weeks with the Hezbollah representative because I ran a school in his city, it was basically their city, and we got on very, very well. Hajj Abdel Nasser Surur, his name was. He had a daughter who was very ill at one point and that he took her to Italy to have some treatment and so on. He was a lovely, lovely man and it was it's difficult now to think of those students in the school a lot of them were palestinians most of them were shiites as i said we had a lot of un families in the school united nations children Fij- fijians irish children and so on and it was a wonderful time because even though it was largely muslim once a week they had chapel and at every graduation i was able to do a talk from the Bible, and this will shock you, every time I read from the Bible, guess what happened? Everyone stood up. It was wonderful. And they were very open to it. As long as their child was educated well, they were happy to send them to And It was called the Lebanese Evangelical School in Tyre. It was very clear we were Christians and we were evangelicals. And it was a very special time, that six and a half years, that we headed up the work there. And then after that, we came back. And I did an MBA at the University of Bath. And that's how I got the job I'm in now. Ten years in Bath. One year in Shepton, Malay. And that's my journey. Does anyone have any questions? I I know some people need to go and so on. But if anyone has any questions, I'd be happy to answer them or... Maybe while you're having pudding or coffee or whatever you have now.
0: Can you speak a sentence of
2: Arabic? What would you like me to? Say? I'll 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 say Psalm 23. Oh, just, four, just a sentence. Just a couple of sentences. fala yauzni fi mara'in khudrin ila raha So that's the that's the classical Arabic, the the. Arabic that the Quran would be written in. And then the strange thing is the slang Arabic will include English words. So the word weekend is used in, Ara- is in slang Arabic because they have no word for the weekend. So it's a bit like French, I suppose. Weekend is used in French as well. So mm, That's all right. It's a lovely language. It sounds like you're angry with everyone. It does sound like it does. It does sound like you're 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 cursing their mother or something, but you're not. You know, it, it can, it's a very guttural. So there's lot. There's two H's. There's Ha and there's ha, and there's ta and there's ta, and there's sa and there's sa. So there's lots of different, and it's very difficult to know the difference between them. But uh, but you, when you're brought up with it, you get it. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Nigel, for sharing with us. I know there's a whole lot more uh, you could have shared, and I'm sure people will chat with you, but thanks for sharing what you did. It's good to see a bit of passion and emotion, too, talking about what God has done in your life. And uh, isn't it sad that the, the very first casualty in any conflict is the truth? And we've seen that day in and day out, sadly, in the current situation. So we need to go to the one who is the truth to get to the bottom of the issue but thank you again and the lord bless you and annette and the family too as you continue to serve him in a in a different area of ministry let's just pray for nigel and the family then we'll have our dessert together father god we do thank you that you do have a plan and a purpose for each of your children and sometimes it takes us to places we may not choose to go to into situations that we find difficult and challenging and yet as we have heard today Whatever you call us to do, you equip us to accomplish your work and purpose. We thank you for Nigel and Danette and for their family, both their immediate family and wider Lord. We pray a continuing blessing on them, that they might know your ongoing provision because you are still their employer. And that Lord God, they would know that um, you are a faithful God, that the work you have begun in them, you will also bring it to completion and we do pray for the nation of Lebanon particularly at this time teetering on the brink of getting involved in a growing and dreadful conflict we pray Lord for wisdom for peace for truth to prevail for righteousness to flow like a never-ending stream we ask it in Jesus name Amen and that Rob and Pam have kind of retired now from Woody's. They are still ministering. They're my prayer partners, so I know Robin Pam well. So they're not ministering at the moment in a formal way. They retired about two years ago. Had a great send-off. It's on YouTube if you get a chance to watch it. So uh, they're still around at Woody's. And if you know Woody's at all, they've grown into a number of churches in the Bristol area, serving uh, the area of Bristol. So uh, check it out anyway. So it's time for us to have our dessert, and then we'll bring things to a close. Thank you again, Nigel.